7, 32 through 61. Hear the word of the Lord. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But when the Others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Communities downtown campus. And we're going to begin this morning with an interactive exercise. And when I say interactive, I mean verbal engagement. Now, it is 8.50, okay? So for some of you, you've been waiting for this all day. Others of you are like, man, this is going to take a lot of work. So here's how this is going to go down, all right? I'm going to show you some images on the screen, and I want you to shout, yes, shout. 
You can whisper, but nobody will know. I won't know. I'm looking to know. I want you to shout what comes to your mind when you see these images on the screen. The first thing that comes to your mind. Everybody got what's going down here? So there's going to be an image on the screen. First thing, who or what that comes to your mind, I want you to shout it out. You ready? All right. Well, let's, let's go for it. Facebook. Mm, good. Excellent. McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> oh, general acting G. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody get this? Ah, look at this. Great. Sorry. Sprint. Come on, Casey, folks. Yeah. Apple. All right. Now I'm going to show you one more image, and I don't want you to shout anything out. I want you to think about this image. I want you to hold it in your mind. I want you to be thinking about what you're thinking about when you see this image. All right. No words. But just think about it. What do you think about when you see this? You see, we live in an age of shorthand, emoticons, memes, brands, logos, where an entire organization, even a person like Prince, the musician, or even a nation can be summed up with one image. And of all the symbols, all the icons, all the logos to represent Christians for over 2,000 years, this has been the primary image, the cross. And now crosses are everywhere, right? I mean, you see crosses, giant crosses, tiny crosses, crosses on tops of buildings. You see crosses for necklaces, crosses as rings, tattoos, hair ties, neckties, tie-dyed, petrified. I mean, the things are everywhere, right? And it's kind of crazy when you think about how the cross, this universal symbol for the Christian faith, such that if I went to go grab that cross right there and snap it in half, there would be a visceral reaction in this room. It's amazing how that symbol, a universal symbol for the Christian faith, was historically a universal symbol for the most heinous form of suffering known to humankind. Let me just give you a little more background. Crucifixion, so being crucified on a cross, was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected in its torture by the Romans. Crucifixion, it was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. And the practice was so barbaric, I mean, it was unbelievably excruciating, such that unless you had an edict from the Caesar, no Roman citizen was legally allowed to be crucified. You know the word actually excruciating, the word that we sometimes use to describe when we've stubbed our toe on the bedpost the umpteenth time, right? This word was actually invented to describe the indescribable pain of the crucifixion. Literally, the word excruciating means a pain like that of crucifixion. Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century AD said this was the most wretched of deaths. The great ancient Roman philosopher and political theorist Cicero said that this was so grotesque that any decent Roman citizen shouldn't even speak about it. And with good reason, right? Here's the normal flow of the crucifixion. A criminal, after condemned to, cruci to crucifixion, would take the beam, the post, the cross beam, and they would carry it to their site after they had been beaten to the site of their execution. Unless, of course, they had been beaten so intensely that they couldn't even carry the crossbeam, as we see with Jesus here and Simon the Cyrene, who carries the post for him. 
after they carry the post, then they are laid down. And these nails, not through the palms of their hands, because if it went through the palms of their hands, as soon as they were hang, hung up, it would just slice through their skin. It was actually through their wrist, because the bones of the wrist would hold them there as they hung. It was through the bones of the wrist and through actually the ankle bones of the feet. These nails would be hammered in, hit after hit, until they slowly made their way through and lodged in the wood behind. After the criminal is nailed to this wood edifice, they are then hoisted up. And as they land in the hole in which the post hangs, those nails emaciate bone and flesh. And what's so awful about this practice as well is that to breathe, the way that the person, the criminal was positioned was that unless they pulled themselves up to breathe, they would instantly asphyxiate. And so in order to take a breath, you would have to pull yourself up by the same limbs and push with the same limbs that have nails lodged through them, emaciating more bone, more flesh. Every breath was horrendously painful, which is why so many who were crucified died rather quickly and gave into asphyxiation. But then, of course, there were others, others who would go on for hours in this excruciating pain, and they would bake in the Middle Eastern sun and freeze in the Middle Eastern evenings, pulling up just for one more breath to say one more goodbye, to make one more prayer. And none of this was done behind closed doors. You see, all of this was done on one of the primary entrances right out the city gate. And men and women and children would come by and mock, spit, throw stones, and do worse, far, far worse things to those who were being crucified. Crucifixion was awful. And now we make crosses out of potpourri. <laughs> I mean, how does that happen? Why does that happen? I mean, and, and why out of all the things in Jesus's life that he did, why is an emblem of unbelievable suffering and shame the central logo of the Christian faith? You see, Buddhism, they have a guy sitting down or maybe the lotus flower, depending on what you consider the primary image. Islam has either the crescent moon and star or the name of Allah in Arabic, depending on where you land theologically. But for Christians, right, we worship a glorious king. And spoiler alert, but Jesus doesn't stay dead. He doesn't stay in the grave. He resurrects. Our king is alive. And one sense, you can't talk about the cross without talking about the resurrection. And we'll get to that, obviously, next week. So why don't we have like a round stone as our emblem? Why don't we have a crown as our primary logo or a throne or a, a scepter or even a castle? Who wouldn't want a castle? as your primary logo. But it's none of those, is it? Instead, the primary logo across cultures, across the globe, throughout history, is rightfully the cross. I mean, for Christians to choose the cross as the primary logo for over 2,000 years would be akin to the African-American community choosing to make jewelry of nooses after years of being lynched in the United States. I mean, this is visceral. This is emotionally heavy. What's going on here? Of all the logos, why is the cross the central logo of the Christian faith? And a good logo, right, it captures the very ethos, the center of that organization, person, nation, or movement. 
Well, if you're new with us, okay, we've been walking through Matthew's gospel account for a good while now. And Matthew, who walked and talked with Jesus, he wants us to see who he saw, that the historical Jesus really is the king, and not just any king, but the promised king that, that God has promised since the dawn of time. For example, we see, just to do a quick review, just a couple examples here in Matthew chapter 1, we see a genealogy. How do you start a really neat story with a genealogy? Because Matthew is wanting to show us that Jesus is in the kingly lineage of David. He is the promised king to come. When the wise men come in Matthew chapter 2, example number 2 here, when the wise men come, who do they ask to see? We want to see he who is born king of the Jews. When Jesus comes proclaiming and teaching, he's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew wants to make abundantly clear that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the king. But what Matthew also makes crystal clear in the passage that was just read for us, what Matthew and what each of the four gospel writers, those who walked and talked with Jesus, those who saw and had eyewitness accounts in which they collaborated to bring us forth a historical account of Jesus, what they want to make absolutely central is that when it comes to Jesus, you can't have the crown without the cross. You can't have the crown without the cross. I mean, many are going to try to downplay the cross. They do so today and say, hey, listen, the cross is this bloody, grotesque mess. Let's just move on to the resurrection. But why is the cross our central logo? And has it been for 2,000 years? Some implicitly downplay the cross and say, hey, let's just focus on the teachings of Jesus. You know, the golden rule or the great commandments. But neither of those are the primary logo of the Christian faith either. You see, Matthew won't have it any other way, and really Jesus won't have it any other way. Jesus could not have just died of old age. He could not have just died of natural causes. He had to die on the cross. And Jesus is king, especially when he's on the cross. Because when it comes to Jesus, you can't have the crown without the cross. That begs the question, doesn't it? Why? Why can't we just focus on the teachings of Jesus and spend all of our time there? Why can't we just tell people about the resurrection life he offers? Why make the cross the primary logo of the Christian faith for over 2,000 years? Why does the Apostle Paul, when he knows the cross is the primary scandal and the primary um, obstacle for the Jewish people to embrace Jesus as Messiah, because why would God send a Messiah who would die. God wouldn't do that to his Messiah, or so we think. So why not just abandon the cross? Why does Paul say, hey, this is absolutely central to the Christian faith? And why does Matthew and every gospel writer and across the pages of the New Testament? Here's why. This is really important, and we're going to unpack this, because the crown without the cross will always crush us. The crown without the cross will always crush us. And I want you to hang with me here because we're going to unpack some of Matthew's assumptions that are going to then explode the passage that we see before us. And we've got to do a little bit of work to really see the beauty of Jesus Christ crucified this morning. You see, Matthew, he makes an assumption. All the gospel writers and actually all the authors of scripture make an assumption. And a majority of the people around the world throughout history have made a pretty big assumption. The assumption is that there is something or someone outside of the world that is that made the world exist. Aristotle, circa, you know, 322 BC, 
called this the unmoved mover or the first cause. He looked around and he saw that we are a cause and effect world, that every action, and we say this in science, now every action has an um, equal and opposite reaction. But something had to be the unmoved mover. If the whole world is in motion, what began the motion? And Aristotle and actually a majority of philosophers from there on have said there has to be a first act, a first movement, an unmoved mover. But who or what is that first cause? Central to the Christian faith, this first cause is not a mere force, but is a person who has created the world and made himself known. He's told us who he is, beginning through Moses in the book Genesis, which means what? The beginning. And there we see that God says, I have ordered the universe in such a way that it teems with flourishing when it fits my blueprint, when it follows underneath my leadership. And then like a potter, when he comes to clay, he crafted humankind with indelible worth. This is actually the foundation for human rights, y'all. With indelible worth for every human being, and he puts his imprint of his image upon humanity. And so we find that God is the cosmic king over all of his creation, and we are his princes and princesses caring for his kingdom. And how do we repay him? We see this narrative throughout scripture. How did we repay him? How do you repay a father who's given you everything? Well, what we see right there at the very beginning, recorded in Genesis 3, ever since the first human beings have chosen to supplant his rightful place as creator king in our lives. And we've tried to assume this role we were never wired to take, the role of being God. That's where our order is best rather than God's order, where we define what is good instead of God saying it is very good the way he's designed the world, where our word is right over against God's word, where our will is supreme, and what's happened in this self-centered world rather than a God-centered world. You know, I, I did a wedding up in Portland, Oregon on Saturday, yesterday. <laughs> Good to be with you. Um, <clears throat> and going and riding an Uber and both on the plane had a lot of different conversations with people because I'm a talker, if you didn't know. Um, and time and again, people would just say, you know, what is it with us as human beings that we just cannot care for each other? What is it? I mean, we, however long we've been around as human beings, we just cannot seem to care for each other. The Christian narrative says it's because we've made the world self-centered rather than God-centered. And so we hurt each other. We abuse ourselves. And we've actually disdained God. So what's a king to do to those who ignore his rule? Or maybe better yet, what is a just king to do when his kingdom is being destroyed? When there are those wounding his people within his domain. A just king, what does he do? He brings justice. He brings evildoers to punishment every time. That's what a just king does. This is the role of the crown to care for the kingdom. In our world, it aches for justice, doesn't it? Don't we ache for justice? Like every time you watch a superhero movie and the villain is vanquished, there's like this celebration moment, this yes. Every time you watch a documentary and oppressors are thwarted and the vulnerable are rescued, don't we cry tears of joy? And when justice doesn't happen, when the vulnerable appear to be 
When we look in Egypt and we see two churches bombed, don't we cry out to God and say, where is your justice? Aren't you angry about this? And being and asking God to be angry at injustice, there's an old word for that. It's called his wrath. Wrath is God's just anger at injustice. And we're really asking God to pour out his wrath on injustice. But there's one big hairy problem, right? God is more inclusive than we are. We're pretty exclusive people, especially when it comes to justice. We like to point the finger. But God brings evil doers to punishment every time. And God says something that makes everyone feel really uncomfortable. God declares all have sinned. All have sinned against each other. All have sinned. We've all sinned against ourselves. We've all sinned against God. And it's not just a select few. It's not just the worst of us. It's not just the richest of us. It's not just the most addicted of us. But according to God, it's all. Say all. all. There you go. And a God of justice must punish evil every time or he will be unjust for all time. You see this? A God truly of justice must punish injustice every time or he will be seen as unjust for all time. But maybe your heart resonates with the words of the German poet and skeptic Heinrich Heine. As he lay on his deathbed, he said, God will forgive me. That's his job. <laughs> well, why? Your gut? A hunch? Well, I just think is often the phrase that comes. Please hear me. Don't let your desensitization to evil because of your guilty conscience wanting to justify your own position somehow distort your understanding of God's perfect justice. Don't let your desensitization to evil distort God's perfect justice. Actually, God cannot just forgive and still be just. We read, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, both sound absurd. The Lord detests them both. But God still wouldn't give up on us. God still wouldn't give up on us. He longed to make peace with us. He longed to provide forgiveness and still be just. And in his infinite wisdom and his infinite love, this is where we begin to understand the gospel where God sent his one and only son. And Matthew tells us all the way in chapter one that this is why his son's name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He didn't just come to make our lives better. He came to redeem us. And how, how can a king, how can this king, a just king, a perfectly just king, with a righteous crown before us once again, this is where we cue the cross. You see, the crown can only be for us after the cross is first for us. The crown can only be for us after the, the cross is first for us. And so we see God the Father send God the Son who willingly became fleshy, earthy, sweaty, human. And he dwelt among us. And Jesus, the God-man, came. He came to die for us. 
He came fully man that he might fully represent all men. And he came fully God that his death might be sufficient for all men and for all sin once for all. And it was there on the cross, the promised perfect king with nail-pierced feet, holding himself up with nail-pierced hands, stood in our place as our substitute. In his death on a bloody cross, he took all of our sin upon himself, enduring the wrath of God. That righteous anger at injustice was now placed towards his son in our place so that we don't have to be in that place. The Apostle Paul says it most eloquently when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might stand before God justified, right. What kind of love is this? Who would substitute himself for us? And I was reminded of theologian John Stott and what he says here that's so brilliant. He says, the, the concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, self-centered rather than God-centered, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. Only this kind of death by this kind of king can make a symbol of horrendous suffering that was a swear word in the first century, the symbol of hope and forgiveness. And now you can come to the cross this morning and you can begin to see who Matthew saw. What Matthew wants us to see in Jesus on the cross. How countless brothers and sisters before us in history saw the cross. This wasn't a random out of place event. Instead, here we see who our king is before us. When having all power, all authority, he takes all the power of heaven and dies for us on earth. You see, you can't have the crown without the cross because first, not only will the crown without the cross crush us, but also Jesus' crown is defined by the cross. You will have no concept of the kingdom of God without the cross. And so when you come to our passage here in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 through 61, we find the coronation of the Son of God. We see His crown is placed upon His head. We see that he is seated on his throne, but it is a throne of wood. It is a crown of thorns. And it is a king who dies for his subjects that mock him. Look with me here, and we begin to see the irony and the deep love of our great God. When we come to the cross, we see the king who in verse 34 could not drink the sour wine offered to him on the cross, but drank deeply of the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. We see on the cross the king who in verse 35 was naked on the cross, his clothes divided among soldiers, but is also the one who will clothe us in his righteousness. When we come to the cross, we see our king who in verse 37 is sarcastically proclaimed finally by the people that he's come to die for as the king of the Jews. And ironically, he reigns even from the cross over them there. On the cross, we see the king who in verse 38 is placed between two thieves. 
And yet ironically, although crucified like a criminal, is the only perfectly righteous person to ever have lived. On the cross, we see the king who is mocked in verse 42 as being unable to save himself, although he willingly chooses not to save himself in order to save others, even his enemies who mock him in that moment. In verse 50, we see on the cross the king who is the very author of life who gives up his life. And all of creation, it writhes at the death of the Son of God on the cross. The sun above refuses to shine, right? Darkness overcasts the land. The earth below refuses to remain still. All of creation, it aches when the Creator King is crucified for you and for me. Can you see Him? Can you see what Matthew saw? Or even as you think about the Apostle Paul, when he thinks back to the cross... And he thinks upon who Jesus is. I always run to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of the cross, fully God, fully man, doing the unthinkable, doing what was thought impossible, making peace in his death on the blood of his cross. You can't have the crown without the cross, and praise God, Jesus is the kind of king who wouldn't have it any other way. Jesus is the kind of king who chose the cross for us, for you, for me. And now I want you to imagine Joseph of Arimathea wrapping his Savior's body in clean linen. Only days earlier, Jesus had called Lazarus out of the tomb. And now Jesus himself is placed in the tomb, lifeless, motionless. And as the stone was rolled in front of the entrance, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, they're sitting there in this strange silence. Nothing is coming from their teacher, their rabbi, their Lord. A silence from the creator king who spoke the world into existence. And while we know and Matthew knows that isn't the end of the story, it is at the core of the story. And there's more to come and we'll get to that next week. But today, and with extra attention this week, and as we will remember again on Friday, the goal of today isn't to better yourself. The goal of today's text isn't to improve your productivity. It isn't to find the five key steps to make your marriage better. It isn't the goal isn't to find the three key elements of your man. You know, this is not the goal of this text. What Matthew wants us to see is our king crucified for us. So come to the cross. Come to reflect. Come to remember. If you lack compassion, if you lack encouragement, zeal, or hope, come to the cross. If you doubt God's love for you, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. But what of his enemies? Come to the cross. 
Come to the cross with the soberness over your sin. Come to the cross with gratitude over his sufficient death for your sin. Come to the cross with humility that God had to die for you, that it is really level ground at the foot of the cross, that you are no better and no worse than anyone. Come to the cross to surrender, surrendering to the king who surrendered everything for you. You see, the cross is our primary logo for over 2,000 years for a really good reason. We see where we deserved to be. On the cross, we see our substitute who paid our penalty. We see our king with arms wide open, ready to receive. Come to the cross. Let's pray. Merciful God, you have created us out of the overabundance of your love. And we have repaid you since the very first human beings in rebelling against your right rule. And it has breathed destruction this world over. Thank you that you did not give up on us. Thank you that your heart and your pursuance of us and your justification through the cross and your commitment to justice are still greater than our sin. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. May we never move past the cross, but may we cherish it today and always. May we return to the beauty of the gospel day after day and find the energy by the power of your spirit to pick up our cross and so follow you hereafter. All this in the name of our crucified King, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.